welcome to today's episode of Healthry Radio for AML, a show that connects patients with acute myeloid leukemia researchers. I'm your host, Katie Braswell. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, for their support of the Teltry Radio for AML show. Before we get started with today's show, I'd like to mention a few upcoming events that we will be hosting throughout the month of February. Next week on February 16th at 1 p.m. Eastern, we will be hosting a virtual event within our AML Caregivers chapter titled Lessons Learned as an AML Caregiver. Karis Amen, who was a caregiver to her husband, Rob, will join us to share the top lessons she learned while supporting her husband in navigating his AML diagnosis. There will be plenty of time for discussion at the end. Also, on February 23rd, we'll be hosting a virtual event within our adult AML chapter featuring AML survivor and patient advocate, Ilana Massey, who will share her journey of physical and emotional healing after stem cell transplant. You can register for both of these events by visiting our website, www.healthtree.org. As a reminder for today's show, if you have joined us online and would like to be able to ask Dr. Kastner a question during our Q&A period at the end, you will need to call in via telephone to 515-602-9728 and press 1 on your keypad when you are ready to ask your question. Now on to today's show. About one-third of acute myeloid leukemia patients have a FLT3 mutation. Up until recently, this specific mutation typically report, resulted in poor treatment outcomes. Today, we have several drugs designed to directly target this mutation, and even more progress is occurring with newer drugs and various treatment combinations in clinical trials. Today, Dr. Margaret Kastner, an AML expert from the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, will summarize key developments and clinical trials currently underway for FLT3-positive AML. This show will provide those who are FLT3-positive a deeper understanding about targeted treatment options and which clinical trials to consider as part of your care. We are so pleased to have you here with us on the show today, Dr. Kastner, but before we get started, let me provide an introduction for you. Dr. Margaret Kastner is Associate Professor and Chief of the Leukemia Program in the Department of Medical Oncology at Sydney Kimmel Medical College. She is also the Co-Medical Director for the Clinical Trials Office at the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center. Her research focuses on the use of novel agents in myelodysplastic syndromes and acute leukemias. She has participated in many clinical trials for FLT3-positive AML, including the ADMIRAL trial, which showed improved overall survival with the oral FLT3 inhibitor gilteritinib versus chemotherapy in patients with relapsed or refractory FLT3-positive AML. She currently has quite the list of open clinical trials, with several of them being for newly diagnosed or relapsed refractory FLT3-positive AML, making her the perfect person to speak to us on this subject today. Thank you so much, Dr. Kastner, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you uh, about the FLT3 mutation today and, and all our new therapeutic options. Yeah. I just want to say that I'm just absolutely amazed at the willingness of AML experts to participate in these programs. I reached out to Dr. Kastner after hearing her moderate an AML session at the annual ASH meeting in December, and she responded to me the very same day and was so open to participating. We're just so very grateful for your time today. Really happy so let's to go here. ahead. Great. Let's go ahead and jump into our discussion all about FLT3-positive AML, and let's start with the very basics. Can you tell us what a FLT3 mutation is and talk about how this mutation affects patients with AML? Um, sure. 
So um, even though you'll probably never uh, hear it called anything but a FLT3 mutation, it stands for um, FMS-like tyrosine kinase 3, um, and that's because it's a member of the class 3 um, receptor tyrosine kinase family. Um, a lot of other members, members of this family are also um, – it can also be an issue in the development of different cancers. Um, and this, many, many large studies have identified FLT3 as the most common mutated gene in both adult and pediatric patients with AML. Um, as you said in the introduction, about 30% of, patient, of adult patients with AML um, have constitutively activating mutations, um, and they're, it's common, though quite as common in pediatrics. Um, there are two types um, of FLT3 mutations. Most commonly, um, that you will see the letters ITD, or internal tandem duplicate, um, and this is um, sort of an interesting structure for a mutation in that what happens is the same set of abnormal um, genetic material repeats itself over and over and over again, gets longer and longer and longer, um, and uh, that's, how it, um, that's how it causes problems. Um, we sometimes see the same structure in genetic disorders that are passed from generation to generation, and sometimes as it gets longer and longer, um, it gets worse. Um, sometimes we see it younger and younger in future generations. This is that type of genetic mutation. There's also what's called a TKD or a tyrosine kinase domain mutation, and that is what's called a point mutation. When a single um, kind of letter in the, in the genome, a single nucleic acid in the genome, um, is altered. So um, clinically, the ITD mutations are the ones that are associated with earlier time to relapse and poorer overall survival um, in AML patients. Um, and more recently, it's become clear that patients who have a higher, um, higher number of mutant copies compared to the wild type, and you'll hear that called the allelic burden or the allelic ratio, the higher that number is, the worse the clinical outcome. Um, and so in the European leukemia net classification, people with lower ratios are not considered to be as high risk. Um, in, in the AML community in, in America, we usually um, treat all split uh, 3 ITD patients as high risk. Excellent, excellent overview. Do we have an idea of why this mutation occurs? Is this something that runs in the family? Is there anything environmental we're aware of? Um, so, the, so what we know about these mutations are that clearly they're not random, right? They occur, the same types of mutations occur in lots of different people's AMLs. And that's because they, they provide a survival advantage to the leukemic cells. They make it easier for them to grow and better. But we don't know what actually causes them in the first place. So we don't, it's not as far as we know, um, passed genetically from fa through families. Um, and there isn't a specific environmental risk that's associated with it. So 
you know, we know that if we give somebody radiation for a, can- for a cancer diagnosis, it increases their risk of AML, but not this type of AML. So for now, we don't have a specific cause for FLT3 mutations. And so how would a patient know if they have a FLT3 mutation? Um, so it is standard when someone um, is diagnosed with AML, if it's when they come to me, um, that we um, look at the genetic and molecular makeup of their AML. And this always includes a PCR for FLT3 mutations. Now, as I said, there are two different kinds of FLT3 mutations, and it actually requires two different types of testing to look at the two different mutations. But we standardly do that for all patients um, at the time of diagnosis and also at the time of relapse, because FLT3 mutations can appear when they weren't there before, and they can also disappear after people are treated um, for their initial AML. So this is something that's being done on everybody as like a standard of care. It's not necessarily something a patient would need to ask for. Right, that's correct. So um, everybody should, every patient with um, AML should have this tested both at diagnosis and potentially at relapse. Um, So if if there's a patient who has a diagnosis and hasn't been told what their FLT3 status is, that's likely because it's negative, but it's always appropriate to ask. Got it. Yeah. So I was going to ask you on some stats about FLT3, which you have kind of already gotten into, but what about the the difference in prevalence between the two that you mentioned, ITD versus TKD? Which one's more common? So um, FLT3 ITD mutation is much more common. Um, I actually don't know the numbers, um, but we but it is most common, it is the more common um, mutation. And um, when we get down to talking about treatment, not all FLT3 inhibitors um, cover both types of mutations. But again, the FLT3 ITD mutation is the one that is associated with the worst outcome. Um, So the TKD mutation um, is less common and also is sort of less bad, if I can use that phrase but it does allow us a target for therapy to add to standard therapies if a patient has that mutation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So why has FLT3-positive AML historically been known as a difficult-to-treat type of AML, and what are your thoughts about this idea today? Well, so it it turns out that patients with and without flit 3 mutations go into remission at similar rates. The issue is that they don't stay there long. So patients with FLT3 mutations without um, the addition of FLT3 inhibitors um, tended to relapse very early, tended not to be able to kind of make it to allogeneic stem cell transplantation, which is our road to cure. because if their disease relapsed too quickly, then, then maybe they weren't even able to make it there. And then even if they could make it there, 
they might not do or they definitely did not do as well as patients without the mutation in transplant. And so, you know, of course, that, that's not a good scenario. Um, and certainly the statistics showed that it was, in fact, more difficult to treat. Um, but the truth is that SLT3 inhibitors are changing that. And if you look at other diseases in the leukemia arena, um, for example, um, Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL used to be kind of the one that was the worst and difficult to treat. But then when we started using all of the great drugs that we use for CML in that disease, it turned out that not only was it not worse, but now there's evidence that maybe we could even treat these patients without a transplant. And so that's how I see, or at least that's how I hope, split three positive AML is moving. So now we have very targeted inhibitors that aim at this mutation. And when we use them, especially in combination with chemotherapy, people's outcomes are greatly improved. And we have a lot of hope that if we can figure out the right combinations, the right timing, um, that we can maybe make split three positive AML not only not worse, but maybe better. And one area that this is particularly true is actually in older patients. So patients who can't maybe undergo very intensive chemotherapy or maybe can't undergo a stem cell transplant because of their age or other medical conditions. In the past, having a diagnosis of FLT3 positive AML and, and being one of those patients was really a very poor position to be in. But now, because of our targeted, much less toxic agents, we are potentially able to treat, put into remission, extend the lives of patients who previously might have died very quickly from their disease. So honestly, my thought is that we're very much moving in the right direction um, and that, like I said, it used to be kind of a doomed diagnosis, but now I think it's, it's really um, changing and it's changing rapidly. That's amazing. It's really exciting and gives a lot of hope um, to hear your thoughts on that. So thanks for sharing. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the conversation of transplant. Um, and you mentioned that getting into remission is definitely doable, but staying in remission without a transplant is probably the area of conversation. And I'm wondering is transplant always recommended for those that are deemed appropriate um, with split three mutations? Um, so right now, um, yes. Right now, um, to the best of our understanding, we still believe that people with split three mutations are best served by an allogeneic stem cell transplant if they can undergo one. Um, now, again, if we take lessons from Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL, which, you know, not that many years ago, the answer to should we transplant those patients was 100% yes, all of the time. And now is not at all. Um, now there are groups of patients that, that we recommend 
potentially don't go to transplant, we follow along and look for their mutations, and we might take them to transplant if we need to, but not by definition. And so, again, this is a little bit further behind in that pathway, um, but I am hopeful. Um, I'm hopeful that we might be able to um, find the right combination um, of inhibitors and chemotherapy for to help um, for people not just who, you know, don't have to undergo transplant, but who really can undergo transplant. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, so let's move more into treatment options. And can you talk to us about what FLT3 inhibitors are and when during the course of treatment they're used? Um, absolutely. So um, now's where I really wish I could show you all the pretty PowerPoint picture um, of <laughs> the uh, FLT3 inhibitor, you know, sort of, of, of really of the, the actual, you know, tyrosine kinase and, and sort of what it looks like. But um, basically there are two forms of the FLT3. There's an inactive confirmation, and then when two of them come together, um, that's the active confirmation. And we have a number of inhibitors, some of which affect only the ITD mutation, and that is present in the inactive confirmation, and then some which affect the TKD and some which um, affect both. And so the first generation um, tyrosine kinase, the first generation FLT3 inhibitors um, actually were drugs that were used in solid tumors um, in, other, in other diseases. So, for example, serafinib um, and sunitinib. Now, serafinib is a type 2 inhibitor. It, it only targets um, the ITD mutation. Um, and then, and then there's mitostorin, which I think um, anybody who sort of knows a little bit about FLT3 has heard about because it's the it was the very first um, approved FLT3 inhibitor. It is a type one inhibitor. It affects both um, both t uh, sorry ITD and TKD mutations. And actually, I think now is kind of a good time um, to talk about mitostorin. Um, because, again, it is um, the first um, FLT3 inhibitor approved in AML. Um, it is approved in the upfront setting. Um, and it was um, the trial that sort of demonstrated benefit was something called the RATIFY trial. Um, and this trial was for relatively younger patients. Um, who were able to get upfront aggressive chemotherapy. Um, we call this combination seven and three because we give seven days of one drug and three days of the other. And they added this oral FLT3 inhibitor called mitostorin to this combination of chemotherapy. Um, and, and then they also added it to um, sort of later stages of therapy um, to consolidation, and then sometimes after transplant. Um, and what they demonstrated was a survival benefit um, for all types of um, FLT3. 
So the biggest benefit was actually shown in TKD patients, but there was also a benefit in ITD patients, both high and low aerobic ratios. Um, now, sometimes people talk about mitosaurin as what we call um, a dirty inhibitor. It inhibits a lot of things, not just split three. Um, so its benefit may be um, not quite as clear as a more specific split three inhibitor, but it is our current standard of care for upfront patients who are able to receive intensive chemotherapy. Um, we'll talk about some trials in that area a little bit later, I think. Um, but the other, so then um, there are second generation um, split three inhibitors that are much more specific. And that includes gilteritinib, quizartinib, and crinolinib. And um, gilteritinib is um, like an oral uh, drug approved by the FDA for relapsed and refractory AML patients. Um, and that was um, because of the ADMIRAL trial, which was um, something you mentioned up front. We participated in it here at Jefferson. Um, and it was a phase three trial that compared oral, um, easy to tolerate, that's my editorial, um, chemo, uh, split three inhibitor versus um, physician choice salvage chemotherapy. And it showed an, um, four months improvement in overall survival. Um, and so this led to FDA approval. Um, now there was another study, a quiz, um, with quizartinib called the Quantum R study, which also randomized patients to um, single agent versus salvage chemotherapy and also showed an improvement in overall survival, but it showed an increased risk of cardiac toxicities. And so I think partially because gilteritinib was also already approved, um, the FDA denied approval of quizartinib based on that study. Um, but there's another big study that just came out in Clozartinib for the upfront setting called Quantum First. Um, and we're all eagerly awaiting the results of that trial to be, um, to be announced. Um, I, I've heard some insight. The, the announcement that was already made is that it reached its primary endpoint, so meaning it improved survival in combination with chemotherapy in the upfront setting, but we're waiting to hear um, all of the details of that, um, and then the FDA review. Um, so I know that was a lot of, a lot of information, um, <laughs> but it, it turns out there's, there's actually even more information um, about, about split 3 inhibitors and what, um, and sort of what's on its way. Yeah, yeah. I, we mentioned before the show even started that 60 minutes is definitely not enough to, to cover everything here, and, and it's very obvious there's a lot going on. Um, that was a really good rundown, and I'm glad you brought up Quisartinib. Um I was going to talk a little bit about it later on, but I did a show with Dr. Stein last week uh, from MSK, and he said that we might see FDA approval for it sometime this year. And so I, I was curious your thoughts, if you are anticipating that as well. Um, I am. I think we were both on the same meeting with the company where we got to hear the sneak peek um, mm. for what that trial showed um, and because we both participated in the trial. 
Um, and mm-hmm. so I, in fact, uh, I do think that there will be approval forthcoming, and I'm, I'm eager um, to see the data when it's in its completion. I think that the real question, um, and this sort of moves into what, what trials are out there, but the real question is, how do these drugs perform in comparison to what we now consider the standard of care, which is, um, which is mitosaurin? plus chemotherapy. So because neither of the studies were done, that you know, there was no standard of care, there was no mitosaurin plus chemotherapy, so neither of the studies were done in comparison, we're left with both ongoing studies that will really look at the question the way it should be looked at, which is comparatively, but also with free, like we'll have this freestanding study and we'll say, like we can't help but compare it, right? We can't help but try to figure out which will be the better option for our patients. And that will include both which one will provide a bigger benefit, but also managing the risks. Um, because these drugs do have different risks, for sure. Yeah. So if we have drugs that specifically target the FLT3 mutation, why is there still such an issue with resistance? And can you talk to us a little about what researchers are currently working on to try to overcome this resistance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the a, little bit, um, a little bit cynical and I guess a little bit um, a sad answer to why we're dealing with resistance is that AML is very smart. And so... Um, it, it basically, um, it kind of knows um, when you give it a therapy that if it wants to survive, it needs to find um, a way around that therapy. Um, and so there are many mechanisms for, um, for FLT3 resistance, unfortunately. Um, one is clonal. Um, and so what I mean by that is that AML actually developed, we, we, we used to sort of think that all cancers developed as one single cell that grew up into the cancer. But actually, what really happens is that there are multiple little pockets of cells that are a little bit different from each other. And one of the things that happens with FLT3 therapy is that a cell that doesn't have FLT3 in it and therefore is able to grow even in the presence of inhibitor that will grow. So that will be the smarter AML clone because, again, all it wants to do is survive. It doesn't really care very much about the fact that it's killing the host. Um, and so what you'll see is that a patient will relapse with um, a FLT3 negative leukemia, a FLT3 negative clone. And then we're no longer able to use the inhibitors, obviously, to treat um, because that clone never had that particular target. Um, the other thing that can happen is that there are specific uh, TKD mutations that provide resistance to the FLT3 inhibitors. They make it so that the FLT3 inhibitors are not particular, that they're not um, able to affect the cells anymore. And so there are specific TKD mutations that provide resistance for the cell to mitosaurin, some that provide it to, like, later, um, later generation, like 
type 2 inhibitors like quizartinib. Um, there's some that provide resistance to specifically to crinoline. So again, these are smart cells, um, and they're developing other ways of helping themselves grow. Um, there's also specific, um, you know, other mutations like things like RAS mutations, which you see in, in other solid tumors that can develop in these cells to help them grow kind of, again, around, around the FLT3 pathway. Um, and so um, one of the things, one of the kind of simpler things that's happening um, is to not use these agents alone. Um, so when we give them in combination with chemotherapy it's, or with other agents, um, like hypomethylating agents, it's actually considerably less likely, um, at least we believe, um, for, for resistance to develop. Um, and so um, combining the FLT3 inhibitors with chemotherapy or with lower-intensity regimens um, is one strategy. And another strategy is actually transplant with the FLT3 inhibitor as maintenance. And so, um, you know, if you don't, if the patients are not getting a lot of FLT3 inhibitor up front, um, and then they only, only a little bit of the disease is left after transplant, and the inhibitor is just being used to kind of prevent relapse, that um, we think that that um, should help with resistance. And then, of course, there's the development, the constant and ongoing development of um, newer generation split three inhibitors that will hopefully um, kind of take into account some of these resistance mechanisms and, um, you know, be available for treatment for people who are resistant. Um, and, and lastly, um, there are kind of other combinations of drugs that aren't split three inhibitors but may work particularly well in split three positive patients that are also being explored in clinical trials. Um, so we know it's a problem and we're really working hard to try um, to uh, address and overcome that resistance. So let's kind of go into each of those areas you, you mentioned in a little bit more detail. Um, let's kind of break up the current work going on for by phase of treatment and talk about the newly diagnosed setting first. Um, can you talk about the studies that are going on now that are trying to answer the question of which split three inhibitor is best to use in combination with intensive chemotherapy? As you've said, that current drug is mitostorin, but does this have the possibility to change? Um, so I, I do think it does. Um, there is a trial. Uh, th th so there are actually quite a number of ongoing trials um, that are directly comparing um, different agents in combination with upfront therapy versus mitostorin. So um, there is a precog trial ongoing. Um, we have it opened at Jefferson um, that compares um, gilteritinib plus 7 and 3 to the standard mitostorin in 7 and 3. Um, there, is, uh, there are um, ongoing um, trials with crinolinib um, that are, are sponsored by the company that look at the same thing, crinolinib um, up front with chemotherapy um, plus, or, or sorry, versus mitostorin plus 7 and 3. Um, and so, 
Um, and then now, you know, the Quisartinib question, um, it really is going to be, it's, it's, you know, for the record, we're never supposed to compare two trials, but it's just impossible not to. So that data will be used, um, even though they're not in a head-to-head trial. Um, so those are the three major um, currently, currently being developed split three inhibitors. Um, and I think we will soon, I hope pretty soon, relatively soon in, ter- in trial time, um, have some answers um, about uh, which, is the, which is the best or which are better um, options for our patients. You know, one of the things that's sort of in- interesting is that the Quisartinib trial um, included patients that were considerably older than the Ratify trial. So it may come up simply that if a patient is older, then they should go on the quizartinib plus chemotherapy rather than mitostorin plus chemotherapy just based on the patients that were included in the trials. Mm. Um, And then the other things that people are looking at for upfront therapy is, so the standard of care now for upfront therapy um, for patients who are not eligible um, for chemotherapy uh, is um, a combination of a hypomethylating agent, classically azacitidine or decitidine, plus venetoclax. Um, And people are looking at combinations of those two agents with um, FLT3 inhibitors, um, and also actually looking at the combination of FLT3 inhibitors plus HMA alone, or FLT3 inhibitors plus venetoclax alone. And those are combinations for people um, who aren't eligible for upfront chemotherapy. And these are all trials, but they're very interesting and very promising. Um, and um, I'll, I'll try to make this plug often. I've, we're halfway through and I haven't made it yet, but you know, enrolling on a clinical trial um, for, for these combinations um, is always going to be of benefit. Um, the, the hope, the great hope is that it's of benefit to the individual person who's on the trial, um, but it's for 100% certain is of benefit to um, the community of AML patients and to the future of AML therapy, um, because this is how we will figure out what the safest and most effective combinations of therapy are. Um, and these combinations are being looked at in the upfront setting, but so... Um, relapse refractory, um, same combinations being looked at for relapse refractory patients. Um, and then there's a whole, a whole discussion about, um, about maintenance, which I think we're, we're probably going to have shortly. Yeah, I think you can make that plug maybe three or four more times throughout the remainder <laughs> of the show. I'm totally okay with that. It's super important. Um, so yeah, let's talk about post-transplant maintenance. Um, and what's going on? What do we know about FLT3 inhibitors in, in this setting? Should they be given to everyone, or, or do we know the answer to that yet? Yeah, so unfortunately, um, we really don't know the answer. Um, I, will, I will editorialize my um, belief, which is that, yes, um, there is a role um, for FLT3 positive for, for maintenance therapy um, in FLT3 positive patients, um, and I say this 
based on a lot of trials that um, have already happened um, and that are um, ongoing. And so there, you know, the the area of, of post-hematopoietic stem cell transplant maintenance therapy for FLT3 inhibitors um, is not, not new. Um, people have looked at um, mitosaurin, um, serafinib, gilteritinib, um, and so the, the evidence that we have um, so far, so, so there was this, this trial called the SORMAIN trial that looked, like, looked at serafinib um, in AML split 3 ITD only patients, um, but it did in fact show a very um, impressive uh, risk reduction for relapse and for death. Um, and, then, and, and the truth is that serafinib is not a, an easy drug to use, and there are, are a lot of um, side effects and issues with it, but it certainly provided a lot of hope. There was a second uh, randomized trial um, that uh, was also with serafinib that also showed um, impressive one- and two-year uh, relapse-free survival and overall survival improvement. Um, and so those, um, those trials really encouraged us in this area. And then the mitosaurin, the ratified trial, um, even though the, the FDA did not include um, post-maintenance therapy, it did, the trial included it. Um, and, then, and that gives us some evidence that um, event-free survival is better uh, with patients who get mitosaurin maintenance. Um, the other agent, gilteritinib, um, is, is the um, drug of choice for what's called the MORPHO trial, um, which is a phase three randomized trial looking at gilteritinib versus um, placebo for uh, 24 months of maintenance after transplant. Um, it's quite a large trial. It's about 350 people. Um, it is also only ITD patients, and we are, um, we're all eagerly awaiting the results, but it's going to be a bit. Um, I think that we're not expecting those results until 2025. Um, there is a cronolinib trial. We thought we were going to see the results um, of that trial. I think, I think we're hoping to see the results of that trial this year. Um, we thought maybe last year, but we haven't quite seen them yet. Um, and then the quantum first trial, which I've already mentioned, included 36 months of post-transplant maintenance for those patients. Um, and I think that, um, so we'll definitely see those results this year in 2022. I think simply the fact um, that patients, uh, if, the fa if it is borne out that patients are, were able to tolerate that duration of therapy um, is actually very encouraging um, for the use of these agents in maintenance therapy because, again, in maintenance, you really you need something that patients um, can tolerate because they've been through their transplant and now they're in remission. And we were, our goal is to keep them there, but, but we need to do that in a manner that isn't toxic to them or to their bone marrow. Um, there is yet another... Um, Phase three gilteritinib um, trial that actually includes upfront and um, and like 
maintenance, consolidation maintenance therapy, and it, it's against um, mitostorin, and we're um, hoping to see the results of that next year. So there is a lot of, um, of hope for use of split 3 inhibitors in the post-transplant setting, um, and it is one of the things that, that gives me hope that we will be able to say eventually that split 3 positive disease um, isn't worse um, than other subtypes of um, acute leukemia. Um, I think that this particular area will make a big impact. But again, this is, I say this based very much on preliminary, um, preliminary data. And I, I really hope that in the next two, three years, that a lot more data will support this and that we'll know, um, maybe we won't know which agents because maybe all of the agents will show benefit. And that's really ideal because then we have a choice and we can look at what patients are tolerating, what patients have received in the past, um, you know, because they aren't identical drugs. And so if somebody has maybe an issue with their heart, it would maybe be better for them to be on one than the other. So having choices is always really good. Um, and so like I said, I think this is an area of a lot of hope um, for us and a lot of research. Yeah, definitely a lot that we'll be learning in the, in the next few years for sure. Can you talk to us about your ongoing trials for FLT3 positive AML? Sure, of course. So I did mention, so we have um, an upfront trial and a relapsed refractory trial. Um, I mentioned the upfront one. Um, that is the precog trial. So um, ECOG is the um, Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group. It's one of the national, um, the, we used to be divided um, into sort of physical geographic areas of cooperative groups in this country, but now it turns out that we're actually all one big happy family, but trials can originate from a specific group. This one is, is the precog, and it, um, compares gilteritinib to mitosorin in the upfront um, setting in a randomized fashion. Um, and we've been enrolling to that for quite a while now, and we look forward to the completion. Um, the other trial that we have is, um, is interesting in that it um, specifically looks at um, a non-FLT3 in inhibitor drug for patients who are already resistant to FLT3 inhibitors. Um, it is a combination of two different pathways, the MDM2 pathway, which is where um, P53, one of the oncogenes that we have, is involved, and something called a BTK inhibitor. Um, that is a class of drugs that has been shown incredibly effective in things like CLL. And so we com combine those two agents, their oral agents, um, to interfere with cell cycling and to address um, the needs of patients who have already seen FLT3 inhibitors and are now resistant. Um, we are also going to be opening um, a trial that combines um, uh, azacitidine, venetoclax, and a FLT3 inhibitor in the upfront setting for patients who are not able to get aggressive chemotherapy, and that's still, um, that's still being opened nationally. So it, it hasn't quite opened yet, but it's, it's on its way. Great. So in your opinion, what are some of the major questions that still need to be answered for FLT3 positive AML? Um, 
Oh, I'm going to sound terribly cynical when I say all of them. Um, so, so the truth is we're really, we're really in our infancy, right? So um, we know that targeting FLIP3 um, is certainly a benefit. Um, the question really is um, when, so upfront um, versus uh, in relapse versus maintenance. And honestly, I think the answer is probably yes, all three. Um, we are still, again, in the infancy of our development of FLIP3 inhibitors. I think that uh, we are certainly have, have good options, but I really believe, based on the development of other tyrosine kinase inhibitors in the field of CML, that we have much better ones to come very soon. Um, and so, you know, I think that um, – I think that – we, as we develop better ones, we'll continually have to re-ask the same questions that we've been asking, which is sort of where is the best place um, to use, sort of the optimal way to use them. But I really do think that ultimately the answer is going to be um, everywhere, up front, um, in, in consolidation, relapse refractory, and in maintenance. So... I think we'll end by maybe letting you reshare your plug on clinical trials. Um, so we'll have plenty of time for caller questions. Um, but when, when should a trial be considered? And do you feel that all FLT3 positive patients should consider joining a trial? Um, so uh, I, I, will, I will expand that and say I think everybody who has AML um, should consider joining a trial. And that's because um, the, the very unfortunate truth about AML is that we are um, still in a place where only about 30% of our patients are long-term disease-free survivors. And we all know that is not good enough. We have made incredible strides in terms of, you know, new therapies, um, for AML in the last five to 10 years. And that has only happened because our incredible patients have been willing to participate in clinical trials and have worked with us to move the field forward. And so, um, you know, we have one standard of care for upfront therapy and one standard of care for relapse refractory therapy. And if that is what is available and appropriate, that's okay. But that is unlikely to be the end of the story for anybody with AML. There's likely, you know, likely to be next steps in therapy. And I highly recommend that if you don't choose an upfront clinical trial, that you consider choosing one in the next stages of your therapy with, you know, for maintenance for a trial or if unfortunately you relapse. Because, again, we, we cannot move this field forward um, without the participation um, of patients, and I cannot tell you how much um, I appreciate and how honored I feel to be able um, to participate in these trials um, because, you know, the, the goal is for 100% of our patients to be with us five years after their diagnosis, and so we have a very long way to go. Excellent. So, 
Now I'd like to open it up for caller questions. If you have questions about anything Dr. Kastner discussed today, you can call into 515-602-9728. And once you're on the call and ready to ask your question, press one on your keypad. I'm gonna check our caller list here and see who I can unmute. Not seeing any questions come through yet, so maybe I can pose my question um, while I see people call in from online here. Um, I'm curious if you could maybe go into the differences between the FLT3 inhibitors that we talked about. You kind of touched on that each one is a little bit different in terms of side effects, and so could you tell us maybe what the main differences are that you've seen so far? Um, sure, sure. So, you know, Midas, so again, we have two, only two approved right now, um, at least for AML, um, Midas Dorin, um, and then the, is, and then, sorry, so, so that drug is the one that's um, in combination with chemotherapy up front, and I'll tell you in terms of side effects, that when you're in your upfront first cycle of aggressive chemotherapy, there's, it's kind of hard to notice um, side effects from this additional pill because you're already in your, your big, complicated cycle of chemotherapy, and that's, that's good. Um, when people try to take it in consolidation and in maintenance therapy, though, um, it's not the easiest drug in the world to tolerate, and one of the reasons is that um, – and this is sort of interesting to me, the, it's a pill, but the pill has kind of a, a scent, sort of an unpleasant scent, and it makes it sometimes difficult to take. Um, and so people have um, issues with sometimes um, nausea or vomiting um, or difficulty eating um, and, and some diarrhea. So it has like um, some GI side effects. Um, they're not... Uh, they're not often so hard to take that we can't manage them, um, but it's also not, um, again, like the easiest to tolerate for every patient. Now, some patients do completely fine, of course. Um, and so that's my distorin. Um, all of the later generation inhibitors, gilteritinib, clozartinib, cronolinib, they're more likely um, to affect um, your heart rhythm and so something that we have to watch very carefully when we give people those drugs um, is we get frequent um, EKGs, at least in the beginning when people first start taking the drugs. And we have to be more careful for drug-drug interactions. But my experience is that people who take gilteritinib tend to, be, um, tend to have an easier time taking it. Um, and we just need to be careful um, with people's hearts. Um, those drugs like gilteritinib um, are similar to other tyrosine kinase inhibitors in that they sometimes have these um, side effects that include um, swelling that can be swelling of your legs. It can also be interestingly swelling around your um, eyelids. It's called periorbital edema. Um, of course, any drugs can sometimes have rashes or other issues like that. I, I will say that, you know, these 
these drugs are um, they're they're not you know they are they are chemotherapies in that they target cancers. Um, they're not like taking a classic chemotherapy, but they do have their challenges. Great. Okay. Um, I see a caller here ending in 3280. I'll unmute you now so you can ask your question. Okay. Yes. Thank you for the presentation, doctor. Um, I had a question about the Gilternib. I had a stem cell transplant two and a half years ago, and I'm doing really well. I had the flip three. Um, and then I started me on the Gilternib for maintenance shortly after the transplant, and I, I couldn't tolerate it. I had muscle pains, and then my liver enzymes went sky high. So since that time, I've not been on any maintenance, and I don't know. Should I be considering, should they be considering another maintenance drug for me? Um, well, let me start by saying congratulations. That's great. You're two and a half years Thank out. You. <laughs> um, and actually, you know, I can't back this up with any solid data, but I can tell you that at this point, we don't really believe that um, adding maintenance therapy, as long as you remain FLIP3 negative, will be a benefit. Um, at least all the historic information we have about maintenance therapy says a year, maybe two years, and at the outset, three years of therapy. So if you've gotten to that point without any, it's extremely unlikely that you need any. Oh, okay. Thank you. And I've always been negative MRD, you know, every time they've done the, yep. the bone marrow. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's very nice to hear. You're welcome. And, and again, congratulations. Thanks. Okay. Again, if you'd like to ask a question, press one on your keypad and I'll unmute you. I don't see any additional questions coming through. And if I don't hear in the next few seconds, we will go ahead and wrap up. Okay, um, I guess we'll go ahead and, and wrap up today's show. Thank you so much, Dr. Kastner, for joining us today. We're just so grateful for your generosity with your time and your willingness to share your incredible expertise with us. We've uh, learned so much today. We're excited for what's to come for you this year in 2022. We'd love to have you again on the show in the hopefully near future to share more exciting updates on Flint 3 Positive AML. Well, thank you again for having me, and um, I would be happy to uh, pop back in with updates when they're available. <laughs> Great. Um, I'd also like to mention to everyone that Dr. Kastner will be joining us again in May uh, for an event in our adult AML chapter to talk with us about understanding our AML labs and bone marrow biopsy results. Um, she'll be speaking on this topic to us on May 5th, so go ahead and mark your calendars. Um, Dr. Kastner, we wish you all the best this year in your clinical practice and your research endeavors. Thank you so much again for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Health Tree Radio for AML. Join us next time to learn more about what's happening in AML research and what it means for you.